43% of people aged 16 to 85 years had experienced a mental disorder at some stage of their life, which is equivalent to like 8.5 million people. It's a huge number. Now, a mental disorder is characterized by a clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior, which covers a range of disorders like anxiety, depression, and even substance use disorders. I think everybody would fall in this category. Like you say, everyone experiences lack of emotional regulation, anxiety, depression. So really, we all have a mental disorder, don't we? Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. Hello, I am Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert. And I'm Dr. Ross Walker. I'm a cardiologist and preventative health expert. This for 60 plus years of our collective experience and we're essentially on a mission to help you to improve your health and transform your habits so that you can eat, live and move better one episode at a time and we are not about the fluff or the fads. In today's episode, we're going to be focusing on mental health as it's something that affects so many people around the world, not just Australians, of course. And for a lot of people, their goals this year is to improve their happiness, reduce their feelings of anxiety, depression, stress, and so on. So we're going to look at the research to see just how much lifestyle factors actually have an impact on our mental health. So things like what we eat, how much exercise we do, and practicing stress management techniques. I think this episode is going to be a real goodie. Make sure to subscribe. And Ross, let's dive in. So before we get into the nitty gritty, the data and the science on mental health, which we love data and science, how many of the clients that you see in your clinic, would you say, report some kind of mental health concern like anxiety, depression or chronic stress? Well, uh, one of the, the weird things I say in my professional talks, and it gets back to what I say in the clinic as well, say when I'm giving a talk, put up the hands of all those people who come from dysfunctional families as one example. And the figures are 60% of people come from dysfunctional families and 40% are liars. So who's suffering stress in this society? Everybody. Everybody. Not, but not we're everybody. But chronic stress, yeah, like yeah, long term. Well, most people are suffering some form of cry. And I hear it all the time. How have you been? Oh, doctor, I've had a very stressful year. That's almost every person I see in my clinic. Not everyone has anxiety. Not everyone has depression. But living in this crazy world with all the nonsense that's going on all around the planet is causing so much stress for people. There's often the stresses within families. I say that pregnancy is a disease that lasts for nine months and you suffer the complications for the rest of your life. <laughs> so so there's, all of that sort of thing goes on in families all the time, uh, interactions between relatives, uh, just so many things happen. So yes, it, it's... At the absolute norm in my practice to see people that have either some form of chronic stress, some form of depression, some form of anxiety. And do you think that people that do experience, you know, what you're talking about, which is you're saying essentially everyone, would you say most people are willing to admit it or they see it in their life or are they like, nah, other people are way worse off than me, like I'm fine? Yeah, no, I, I think that people are getting more honest about this. And as I said, 60% admit to it and 40% are liars. So, so the, the people 
will come in and say, look, doctor, I think this is affecting my health. And I say, I absolutely agree with you. And we start to work on those sort of things as well. But there are some things that are that are, are just un- uncorrectable. So, you, for example, you'll see families where one sibling doesn't talk to another sibling or there's a fight over the will. Where there's a will, there's a relative. And, and this is the problem that these things go on all the time with people. And it causes these background stresses that everyone's experiencing. Because think about it. We were designed to wander around the jungle for 30, 40 years with a spear. The only stress you had was the acute stress of the kill or the stress of avoiding being something else's lunch. And that was it. But but we, we're woken but it's not up chronic. in the No, yeah. but we're woken up in the morning by a thing called an alarm clock that starts it off and it just keeps going for the rest of the day until you drag yourself back into bed at night. Yeah, it's true. You know, interestingly, I so my husband and I, we have been chatting lately about we're sort of toying with the idea of maybe in the future future trying for children. And I found myself getting so anxious about the idea of being pregnant. And I was chatting to my psychologist about it. And here's the thing, right? I've got endometriosis, adenomyosis. I've had several surgeries on ovaries to remove cysts and fibroids and all sorts of things that go on in my reproductive system. And for me, every time I menstruate, which I haven't for years, because what happens is I end up in hospital every single month for several days. And the only thing that I can do is just get knocked out for that time. And it honestly, it ruins my life. I can't exercise. I don't eat very well. But then I also have the anxiety of coming up to my period and then the recovery time after. So it's just such a horrible time. So she said to me, of course, the idea of falling pregnant is going to make you anxious. But I was trying to rationalize it and say, Gina Cleo, there are millions of women, millions who have had a child. Like I am one of the strongest people I know. I've been through some pretty horrible things. I can have a baby. I can do this. But my emotional brain is like, mm girl, you ain't going to be doing that very easily. Like, And it has been a thing. It's So this, I think there's also so many things that happen in people's worlds we would never know, we would never see, and we probably wouldn't even understand. And it's because of their own lived experience. Yep, yep. And that's, yeah. that's the point. We, we are all um, the collective experience we've had up to this point in our lives. And, well, and, and I think basically life is really a self-improvement program. So you've got to say to yourself every day, how can I do this better no matter what yeah. it is? And, and, whether yeah. it's, uh, and look, as you say, not millions, billions of, of people around the world over <laughs> right, a long Ross, period of time. Geez. I was trying to make myself feel better by saying millions. Well, (laughs) I've have had children, and and I can assure you, having the father of five and grandfather of eight with another one on the way, uh, it's it's um, it's it's challenging, but it's also very 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 rewarding. Well, congratulations! You know, you didn't sell it before when you said that the nine months of pregnancy is like a disease, and then you have symptoms for the rest of your life. Suffer the complications for the rest of your life. Right? I was like, I am not being sold on this one bit. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, this this morning I had a coffee with uh, my one of one of my children, my child number four, and two of my grandchildren. And when when those beautiful granddaughters give you a big kiss and cuddle, uh, nothing's better than that. It's a joy. Yeah, we should push on, my friend. Richard, all right. I think most of us know that mental health is rapidly increasing. It's a a real health concern that we have across the whole world. 
But here are some recent statistics that we've got in Australia. So these are from the National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing, which was released only a few months ago in October 2023. So these are some of the stats. 43% of people aged 16 to 85 years had experienced a mental disorder at some stage of their life, which is equivalent to like eight and a half million people. It's a huge number. Now, a mental disorder is characterized by a clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior, which covers a range of disorders like anxiety, depression, and even substance use disorders. I think everybody would fall in this category. Like you say, everyone experiences lack of emotional regulation, anxiety, depression. So really, we all have a mental disorder, don't we? Oh yeah, I think I think it's the human experience. We are, as a species, Homo sapiens, are very flawed, and and I think all all of us react to our stressors in different ways. Some people will feel anxious. Some people will feel depressed. Some people will throw things at other people and scream and shout. <laughs> other people will will have substance abuse. Other people internalize it and get uh, internal symptoms. So there there's there's always a manifestation of stressors and and nobody has this constant happy life that where nothing ever goes wrong so so and you know, one thing i find really really odd is is people think their doctors are immune to anything you know doctors don't get sick doctors don't get upset or anxious or depressed or, really you know as I, as I say um definition of an alcoholic is someone who drinks more than their doctor <laughs> um, but so so but i i agree with you there's um most people have one of these issues Maybe maybe not a full blown, uh, like a, clinically a full blown significant clinically significant disease, but most yeah. people have something. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, almost a third of people will experience anxiety in their lifetime. That's five point seven million people, and one in seven people will experience depression in their lifetime. Three point two million people. I actually think it's more than this. I really do. I think. No, it's yeah, more. I I agree. And look, this this fellow went into the doctor and he said to the doctor, "Doctor, one night." I dream I'm a wigwam. The next night I dream I'm a teepee. The doctor said, I know your problem, you're too tense. Oh my gosh, Ross. You're killing me with these jokes, Ross. <laughs> I really have to work my mind when I know you're giving a joke because it takes me a minute. <laughs> but that one was good. Here's another thing, right? A person may be negatively affected by symptoms of mental health concerns without necessarily meeting the criteria for a mental health disorder. And there's likely to be even more people then struggling with mental health yeah, than the which is what we've just happen. said. We've, yeah, we've just that's said right. That. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Do you know that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, and it's a major contributor to the global burden of disease, as per the World Health Organization? Yeah. Well, can I say that the World Health Organization's come out recently and said that almost everyone up to the age of seventy-five will have had some sort of mental health issue by that age, which is what really we've been saying. It's so wild. And do you know that this costs the world economy approximately $2.5 trillion every year? And the cost projected is to rise by $6 trillion in 2030. I can't even fathom that kind of money. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. But there's a, a, a recent research that showed that only 10 to 25% of people that do experience depression actually go ahead and seek support by way of therapy. 
And that could be due to either lack of finances or a lack of trained doctors that aren't referring to the appropriate like clinicians, or it could be the stigma associated with depression. What do you find in your clinic, Ross? Oh, yeah. A lot of people don't even want to talk about it. Um, and it's only when you really delve into it with what's going on. When you ask them about their stresses and how they're responding to it, then you ask them about their sleep. I mean, for, for example, the symptoms of endogenous depression, it's the difference here. Uh, I just want to make this point. I think it's an important point. Someone goes into a doctor and says, I'm so depressed, doctor. I, I can't stand my partner. My kids are on drugs. I hate my job. That is not depression. That's grief. But endogenous depression is actually a biochemical disorder of the brain where you do lose your interest in things, i.e. you are depressed. So you've lost things that you used to really look forward to, you couldn't care less, you feel tired throughout the day, and, and this is another cardinal symptom of mild endogenous depression. You wake at 2 o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling for an hour, and you can't get back to sleep. They're the three cardinal symptoms of it, endogenous depression. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. You know, my husband Mitch is a firefighter and he's gone to some pretty traumatic incidences that he has had to work on, whether it be, you know, car accidents or house fires. And I said to him, what what was it like to, you know, debrief after this particular thing that happened not so long ago? And he said, you know, we all get in the truck and, and we might just sort of talk about something else or we might make a joke about something like lighthearted talk about something because it's just too much to talk about some of the things that happen and although although like the first responders and it also includes police because a friend of mine's a cop and she tells me the same thing although the services are there the reason why the staff members may not reach out to them is because they're potentially worried about losing their jobs or the stigma around it and so they'll just bottle all this stuff up and it's never really dealt with, which I think is really dangerous. Thankfully, Mitch is all about therapy, loves therapy. And so we're good. And I'm always like, you've got to debrief about this. Like I'm very good at sort of prompting him. But unless someone was open to that, then yeah, it could just perpetually get worse. And when you think about it, every reaction you have in that situation is really this post-traumatic stress disorder. So some trauma has occurred that has made you feel stressed and you'll react to it in some certain way, whether it be anxiety, depression, or throw things at other people or whatever. It's true. And I've definitely experienced that. So I, I haven't thrown anything at anyone that I can remember, but I have obviously, you know, I've definitely experienced those trauma responses and it's really hard work getting through it. Yeah. We all we all have. And and as I said, some, some people have major issues with anger management. Other people have major issues with anxiety, depression. So, so I, I just think from these statistics alone, we, it's pretty obvious that mental health, and we've been focusing on this, is a huge concern, not just in our country, but all over the world. So it's really important to prioritise mental well-being. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think while it's important to seek help from a psychologist and, you know, Ross and I, are huge, we're huge advocates of therapy and chatting to somebody, I think that, you know, all medications, whatever it might be, right, I think a lot of people aren't appreciative of how our lifestyles can be impacting our mental health. What do you think about that? Oh, I think there's no doubt about it. It's really interesting that the recent COVID pandemic has highlighted this because I think there, what, what COVID did was just tip people over the edge who were already on the precipice. And, and 
typically the people who got very ill from COVID, apart from the very old and the very sick with other problems, were people that had very poor lifestyles because their lifestyles weren't weren't keeping their body healthy. They get COVID and just tips them over the edge. So I think it's so important that people focus on those five keys of being healthy. We're, and I'll say them again. I say them all the time. No addictions, good quality sleep, good quality eating, regular exercise and happiness. So and I, th- I think that people who do those things well can cope with the stresses of life so much better. Mm, yeah, it's so true. And and we know that sometimes they can't only just help our mental well-being, but in some cases prevent the requirement for medications or those mental health concerns getting even worse. Sure. Yeah. So so let's let's dive into some of the, the best things you can do in this new year, 2024 and beyond, to help manage your mental health. Uh, and we're going to do this in, in two parts. So we're going, to, we're going to focus first on nutrition and exercise, but next week we'll cover sleep and stress management. Awesome. I love that idea. So let's deep dive into it then. Should we start with nutrition and let's just see what does the research say? Well, there's a really strong body of, of research now suggesting a link between poor nutrition and mental health, known as, strangely, nutrition psychiatry. So it's important to note that the field of nutrition, nutritional psychiatry is still evolving. New studies are coming out all the time. So let's look at some of the key findings to this point. And this is something that you and I speak about all the time, but the vital importance of good diet and the only diet on the planet with any significant evidence base is the Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet. diet. Yeah. And it's been associated with not just a lower risk of what keeps me in a job, cardiovascular disease. So about a 30% reduction in cardiovascular disease uh, just by people who follow the Mediterranean diet, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, et cetera, but also significant reduction in the risk of depression and improved mental well-being. And, it, and look, there's nothing – people think this Mediterranean diet is something esoteric that only people no. who live in little villages of, in Calabria can follow. Nonsense. No. It's, it's basically fruit and vegetables just, yeah, and oily fr- fish yeah. and legumes ex- and nuts and ex- seeds and whole grains and, and, and herbs extra and virgin olive oil olive as well. Oil. Don't, don't forget that. So, so, and I think extra virgin olive oil is a really important component of this. And the people in the Mediterranean, they, they dip their whole grain bread in olive oil. They, they put olive oil on their salads. They cook in olive oil. So I think olive oil is really important. Uh, but uh, we we got to really focus on the Mediterranean diet in another episode because yeah, it's I, going to I, like I just lots feel of detail with it. That yeah, that's the way we should be eating. But also, other research shows there's a thing called the Smiles trial, which is very appropriate. I love the, these acronyms they use for these trials. So the Smiles trial is the first intervention study of its kind. It's led to an understanding of the role of diet as a treatment strategy for depression. Now, I, I just want to make a point here. About 50, 60 years ago, this this gentleman called Ansel Keys came out with a thing called the Seven Countries Study, where he looked at 22 countries and only released the results of six in a thing called the Seven Countries Study. So if you can figure that one out, you're a smarter what? person than I am. But he came out and he basically said that fat was the cause for heart disease, which is complete and utter nonsense. So everyone went on this low-fat diet, and with the low-fat diet is a low-protein diet. And there's something that's really important in protein. It's a thing called tryptophan, which is one of the amino acids, which is the precursor step for serotonin. 
And a lot of people don't realize this, but we're getting more, more and more emphasis on this now in medicine. But 90% of the serotonin is made in your gut. So if you have unhealthy gut bacteria, you're not making serotonin. So therefore, you go into a low-fat diet, which is also a low-protein diet. There's not enough tryptophan in your diet, so therefore not enough serotonin being made by your gut bacteria. And I think that's a really key reason why we're seeing uh, people who have these ridiculous low-fat diets getting more depression, as one example. Um, I mean, a low-fat diet would make me depressed just because it's low-fat, to be completely honest. But the protein's important as well. So this SMILES trial commenced in 2012, uh, took people up to 2015, and and featured participants with depressive symptoms, randomized them into two groups, one that followed a prescribed diet, Mediterranean-style diet, the other one just a standard diet. And and this was a sort of, the, the Mediterranean diet, is a hybrid based on Australian and Greek dietary guidelines uh, with control participants, uh, participants taking part in the, the social support groups. So this is what happened in this. 33% of the research participants who ate a modified Mediterranean diet reduced their depressive symptoms versus 8%, only 8%, than, than those who are part of the social support group. Wow, that's this, huge. This, yeah, this is after three months. So we're talking what? about one one in three people, no pills, improve their depressive sim- wow, symptoms on huge. a high-quality diet. Wow, that is so huge. Oh, my gosh. 33% versus 8% just from changing what they're eating. Okay, I know that we said that we would talk about the Mediterranean diet in a whole other episode, but this is a cliffhanger moment. Ross, can you tell us what is it about the Mediterranean diet that helps alleviate depression and improve our mental well-being in this way? Because that's a really big difference. In well, three firstly, months- I, I've, I've already mentioned the good quality proteins, which I think are really important. But also, I think there's a big contribution here from, firstly, the monounsaturated fats in extra virgin olive oil, which there, there are other fats, but it's mainly monounsaturated fats, but also the omega-3 fatty acids. So the omega-3 fatty acids are basically divided into a thing called icosapedenoic acid, EPA, and docosohexanoic acid, which is DHA. This is found in fatty fishes like salmon, mackerel, and they've been associated with significant lower risk of depression, I think also with the tryptophan that comes in the protein as well. It reduces inflammation, oxidative stress, and it basically keeps the nerves healthier as well, so you have better thinking. So it improves our mood as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. sort of or, stabilizes our yeah. mood. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What if someone doesn't like fish? Well, what do you recommend? You're, you're speaking to someone who doesn't like fish. I, and in what? fact, let me let me tell you. I know, I, I know, I just don't like the taste, and it makes me feel nauseated when I eat fish. <laughs> and, I, and I tell, and I'm just being honest. And I tell all my patients they should be eating fish if they enjoy it. Uh, but this this is an interesting thing. There's a thing called a test called the omega three index, which is a pinprick test. You put it on a bit of blotting paper, set it off to a lab, and it measures how much omega-3 you have in your red cell membranes. That's so it's cool. called the omega-3 index. So the average omega-3 index of Australians is around 4%, which is appalling. Now, one of my mates, a guy called Professor Bill Harris from the US, published a study in the New England Journal of Medicine where he looked at the omega-3 index of people at 4% versus anyone who's above 8%. What should we found- be? Like, what well, should, where well, should we aim I'll, for? I'll get, we should be above 8%. Okay. 
Okay. So what he found was that people who are above 8% compared with people who were average Australian, which is about 4%, had a 90% reduction in sudden cardiac death by what? having a high omega-3 index. Now, here's someone who doesn't eat fish because I don't like it. So I had my omega-3 index done. What was it? 11.9%. Oh, you can't Why? be a high achiever like that. What do you, like feed off nuts and seeds no, all day long? I, I do that to an extent, but but I also take a bucket of omega-3 supplements every day. Okay, I want to so, get to that. I want to get to that. But first, I do want to close the loop around what do we eat when we don't like fish. So omega-3s are also found in nuts and seeds, plant oils like flaxseed oil, soybean oil, and then fortified foods like breads, egg, yogurt, juices, milk, some soy beverages. So, okay, supplements. Do you take supplements and which ones do you recommend? I take a bucket, but I want to make the point to everybody that I, I believe that we should be getting most of our nutrients from a good quality diet like the Mediterranean diet, not seeing supplements are called supplements for one reason. They're a supplement to healthy living. So I always talk about the 80-10-10 rule. 80% of anyone's management is how you look after yourself, the five keys of being healthy. 10% is the appropriate use of pharmaceutical drugs if you need them, and many people don't. And the other 10% is the appropriate use of supplements. So I take every day in terms of omega-3s and that are Again, being an only retentive neurotic, this is probably a bit over the top. But I, I take a high-potency fish oil, one of those twice a day. I take 1,000 milligrams of krill, which is a very good anti-inflammatory omega-3, and I take New Zealand green lip muscles. So I take those for my joints. So that's why my omega-3 index is 11.9%. But let me also make the point to people, listen, it's, there are some people that just have an inherently high omega-3 index, regardless of what they eat, because we're all different. So what might work for you doesn't always work for your next door neighbor. So don't compare yourself to other people. You've got to go off and have your omega-3 index test, see what it is, see how healthy you are in terms of that, and see whether you may need to supplement, whether you may need to increase your fish intake, or you might be fine. Question, Ros. Do you sometimes burp and taste all that fish supplement that you're having? No, I don't. Okay. No, no, no. So I've got a cast don't iron gastro. No, 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 no. Good Just, to hear. It's very fishy. You know, the very fishy taste. That's what makes me feel nauseated. Yeah, nasty. Sardines. So, so say oh. someone doesn't have access to the specific supplements that you just recommended. If they just went to a pharmacy or a health food shop and grabbed any old fish oil, is that good enough? No, or are there no, fish I oils I and fish oils. There's fish oils and fish oils. And let me just make a point. This is digressing from the topic. But when anyone takes supplements, please do not get your supplements on the internet from the US. US supplements are made to food standard. Australian supplements are made to pharmaceutical grade. So what it says on the bottle is in the bottle. There's no contaminants in the stuff. Whereas on the U US supplements, there's often contaminants. A big study of 300 different supplement companies in the US showed 95% of them either had contaminants or what was on the side of the bottle wasn't in the bottle. Whoa, that's nasty. So don't get on iHerb and get your supplements from there. No, I don't know. We do. iHerb actually makes good stuff. But, but, oh, but, but they're I'm, American. No, not all American supplements okay. are bad. So we can't okay. particularly focus on one, one supplement but, but, or one supplement company. But what uh -huh. I'm saying is in a general principle, buy your stuff over the counter 
in Australia because you get pharmaceutical grade supplements. Got it. Great to know. Thanks, Ross. It's really valuable. So the big question here is, what do omega-3 supplements do? Well, firstly, what they do is they get into your membranes in the cell. So the covering of every cell is called the membrane, and that is the brain of the cell. That's the interface between the external environment and the internal environment of the cell. So what omega-3s do is keep that membrane healthier, and by doing that, you get a reduction in inflammation within the cell because chronic inflammation has been related to not just many other physical diseases, but also depression and and the anti-inflammatory properties of the Mediterranean diet, and in particular, the consumption of the fruits and vegetables, the olive oil, and all the, the, the fatty fishes we've been talking about certainly may contribute to the risk of reduced risk of depression. And here's the key, which we've already alluded to, is the effect of a good quality diet on our gut microbiota. Because that gut microbiome, we are 40 trillion human cells and somewhere between 40 to 100 trillion bacterial cells, most of them living in our gut. So we've got to keep those gut bacteria healthy, which we do by having the two or three pieces of fruit per day, the three to five servings of vegetables per day, which tragically less than 10% of people living in Western communities follow that, which is, and they're the people that have the lowest risk of heart disease, cancer, depression, etc. So the gut microbiome is important, and then other lifestyle factors. So it's important to note the Mediterranean diet is often part of a broader lifestyle. So it's not just the diet, it's how they live. So they wake up in the morning, they have a good-sized breakfast with a whole lot of whole grains and fruits, and then then they go and burn off any extra carbs in the hot Mediterranean sun in the morning, come back and have their biggest meal at lunchtime. Uh, the, The pasta and the glass of red wine makes them a bit sleepy, so they have an afternoon sleep. So it's a good thing to have an afternoon sleep. A study of 20,000, sorry, 23,000 Greeks showed that those who had an afternoon sleep had a 40% reduction in cardiovascular disease. We'll get to that in the next section, of course. Um, but, but also then they have a small, a small meal in the evening. So they're not loading themselves up and not doing much activity. They're burning off any carbs when they're exercising in the morning and in the afternoon in the field. So so it's the overall Mediterranean lifestyle that's really important. So what do we do in Australia? We have small breakfast, small lunch, huge evening meal, sit in front of that ridiculous thing called television, and, and we don't burn off the, the fuel we put into the body yeah. after that big evening meal at night, which is I think we should all move issues. to Greece. I'm thinking uh, Santorini. Or, 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 or Sicily or Calabria. There we go. And I think, look, it's also important to realize there are other aspects of um, nutrition and mental health. So we've been speaking a lot and focusing a lot on macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, protein, but there's also the micronutrients are important. So certain vitamins and minerals, for example, the B group vitamins. So 50% of the population have a defect in what, or a mutation in the MTHFR gene, the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase gene. And that's 50% of people. And if you get a big intake of fruits and vegetables, especially the leafy green vegetables, a lot of folate in that, and that's really good to to help reduce your risk for depression. So there's the B vitamins. Vitamin D is vitally important. So a third of the Australian population have low levels of vitamin D, and there's a link between low vitamin D and depression. Mind you, there's a link between low vitamin D, uh, osteoporosis, heart disease, cancer, multiple sclerosis, type 2 diabetes, wow. um, asthma. I mean, d- vitamin D is important. Huge. Zinc, 
Zinc's important, magnesium's important. All of these things play a crucial role in brain function. And, and if you have deficiencies, that certainly may be linked to mood disorders and supplementation may help. And also, I'm a great believer in probiotics to keep those, those gut bacteria healthy as well. And of, But it's, they're the, the things I'm talking about encouraging people to eat. But I'm also encouraging people to minimize their intake of anything that has a lot of sugar in it, what I call white death, uh, processed foods. We don't know what all those extra chemicals they put in processed foods do to the brain, uh, all sorts of issues. And and look, having a couple of cups of coffee a day is a good thing. You mentioned before you've minimized your intake of caffeine in the late afternoon because it affects your sleep. And, And there are people who are rapid metabolizers of caffeine, people who are slow metabolizers of caffeine. So I'm a slow metabolizer, so I can't have caffeine after about and two I'm or three like o'clock. And I'm like a no metabolizer. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, therefore, you've got to minimize your intake. But a couple of cups of coffee a day for most people does have some significant health benefits, but you don't want it to dis- disrupt sleep, which is so important for you. So agree. And, you know, you've mentioned, you've mentioned all these vitamins and minerals, but really what you're not saying is go out to the pharmacy and get yourself some vitamin D and zinc and magnesium and B vitamins. That's not, we're, What we're really saying is if you eat a really great diet, you should have the whole suite of those beautiful vitamins and minerals in your diet. And only when needed, you can supplement with the extras. And, and there is a thing on just on focusing on vitamin D for a second called seasonal affective disorder, uh, the ac- acronym SAD. And what it, why is that? Because during winter, when we don't have as much sun, people aren't getting as much vitamin D into the system. So it is important to get out in the sun. Now, again, we live in the, the skin cancer capital of the world, Australia. So you've got to be careful with the sun, but it doesn't hurt to get 10 or 15 minutes of good quality sun every day, good dose of vitamin D. You know, I appreciated this when I was in Amsterdam last year. I was there during, I guess, autumn. And my Lord, I didn't see the sun one time. It rained, it was windy, but it was gloomy the whole time. I had a similar experience when I went to London and it was icky. I was like, I I feel like I want to sit under, I don't know, some solarium light or something just to get some, like the feeling of sunshine and the bright light onto my skin. All right. So now we've established that nutrition and more importantly, the Mediterranean diet can have huge benefits for our mental health. I want to now talk about the next lifestyle factor, which is exercise. Yesterday, I was asked, what is the number one habit that everyone can establish in their life and improve their life from? And it was an easy look. It was a toss up between exercise and sleep, but I chose exercise because that's going to help you get a better sleep. So let's talk about exercise. All right. Well, look, exercise to me is the second best drug on the planet after happiness. And it's been associated with improvements in mood, reduced symptoms of anxiety and depression, you think better, uh, just your overall psychological well-being, and that's across all ages. And and people who don't exercise in their 70s and 80s never have exercised, they will still benefit from starting an exercise program, but the earlier you start, the earlier the better. I started my exercise program when I was five, and it's continued now into my 60s. Uh, but, But also... There's a number of reasons why exercise will help your mental health. I think the first one is you're pumping blood up to the brain. When you're exercising, the brain takes 20% of your cardiac output 
when you're exercising, you're really keeping the blood flushing through the brain, flushing out all the toxins you're accumulating. So it's one of the big reasons exercise is associated with less dementia, for example, but also less depression as well. But, but when you exercise, you release all these neurotransmitters. We, we've all heard about these endorphins and enkephalins, uh, more serotonin, more dopamine. People get that, that sort of buzz from exercising. And this contributes to much better mood, uh, much greater feelings of, of reduction in stress and anxiety. Yeah, so true. And speaking of the brain, exercise also has been linked to an increase in neuroplasticity, which is essentially our brain's ability to adapt and reorganize itself. When we're changing our habits, we are implementing neuroplasticity. And this can have huge impacts, like huge benefits with our learning, our memory, our mood regulation. So actually, if we exercise, well, the more we exercise, the more we're able to change our habits because we're allowing all those amazing chemicals in the brain to do their thing to help reorganize our neural transmitters. And then there's also social interactions. I like, I like group-based sort of activities but it has to be with my friends. I don't want to talk to random people at the gym, but some people really love the social interaction and support that they get from other people, which can help with their mental health. And we know that exercise improves our sense of our self-efficacy, our self-esteem. It can reduce inflammation. Yeah, and can I say, when, when I was playing sport, I used to, with, with soccer for the last... Um, 30 years of my sporting life, I won't say career, that's too strong a term. Um, but when, when I was, I used to love Saturday afternoon going down, seeing my mates. I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a father, I wasn't a grandfather. I was, I was the, um, I was the captain of the team and just there with my mates. And I just loved that time with my friends and my squash partner, who's still a very dear friend of mine. We've had to stop playing squash together, but but I used to just love going and playing with him and then sitting having a chat afterwards. So there's so many good things about that. But also let's get back to the more science behind it. Exercise has been shown to reduce inflammation uh, and all the chronic inflammatory parameters in the body are reduced by exercise. And then we know there's a link between inflammation and things like depression, anxiety. I mean, it, exercise improves your sleep. There's no yes, doubt about that. Yes, I love that. that. Yeah. And, and so... And better sleep can also affect your mood and affect your uh, affect your thinking, which I think is important. And, and just generally, people who exercise regularly are better thinkers. There's no doubt about that and have less stress. So uh, a, a new study from the University of South Australia, which was published in 2023, found that physical activity is one and a half times more effective than counselling or standard medications for things like depression. And this study was published in the, and this is a huge study, published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, one of the, It's probably the most comprehensive review of this to date. It looked at 97 reviews, 1,039 trials, and it had in it 128,119 participants. And it showed that physical activity is extremely beneficial for improving symptoms of depression, anxiety, distress. And specifically, this review showed that exercise interventions that were 12 weeks or shorter were the most effective at reducing mental health symptoms. So what we're saying here is you get a huge benefit early on. So you, you've mentioned before a lot of human beings don't like to change their habits and see no difference. Well, you get into an exercise program, you'll see those dinner, uh, differences pretty quickly. And the largest benefits were seen um, amongst people with depression, uh, pregnant, 
postpartum uh, women, healthy individuals and people diagnosed with HIV or kidney disease. So a, a huge study, I think, really, really important. So the key findings from the whole review, higher intensity exercise had greater improvements for depression and anxiety, whilst longer duration had smaller effects when compared to short and mid-duration bursts. So if you're someone who's suffering some of these things, that the high intensity exercise, I think, is an important thing. And I do this every day on my bike where I, 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 have, I go in 30-second cycles. So 10 seconds, I cycle really, really quickly, 20 seconds moderately. And I do that for, for half an hour every training, day. training, Ross. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it also found that all types of physical activity exercise were beneficial. And that wasn't just the high-intensity exercise. Things, just sim- simple things like walking, resistance training. And I'm a, I'm a great believer in just not, not just doing aerobic exercise. You've got to do a bit of weights and stretching. And that's, that's been associated, a combination of, of the two, two-thirds cardio, a third resistance training, about a 40% reduction in death, significant reduction in heart disease and cancer by doing all these things. Pilates and yoga are very, very good for you as well. And, and also, the research shows it doesn't take much the exercise to make a positive change to your mental health. So even just 30 minutes a day of movement can help you really reap the benefits as far as your mental um, mental well-being goes. Uh, but of course, I've already mentioned how good it is for physical well-being. So the things I say to people is, if you can do it, play a team sport. I can t- tell you a funny story. My son-in-law plays over 45 soccer and, and uh, this, I played sweeper my entire soccer, soccer life um, which is the guy at the back just before the goalkeeper. And, and their sweeper um, was was injured for a few weeks. My son-in-law said, yeah, Ross, do you think you can come along with Phil? Come? And, uh, and so the little evil voice in my head said, you can do it. But the sensible voice says, one bad tackle, you've ruined the knee replacement. But yeah. If you, so if you can play, I didn't do it. But if you can play a team sport, um, it's fantastic. So it's it's more fun than it feels like hard work. A stand-up desk is not a bad idea. And, I've got and, one of and, them. And look, brilliant. What I do in my office, I don't have a stand-up desk, but what I do have is is I put all my stuff over on the examination couch where I'm not examining people, so I have to keep getting up to getting the stuff so I'm not sitting down all the time. Great idea. The other thing that I do is if I'm in the office, I will do like walking meetings. So I'll actually get out, say it's at lunchtime, and I'll walk around with, you know, whatever meeting that I've got. I might do that or I'll get out at lunchtime and actually like I'll have my lunch in the sun. Then I'll do a little walk before I come inside. And even if it's just 15 minutes, makes such a difference to the day. I also plan like my partner and I will walk together. So we'll take Macy to the park, the dog park. And she's running around and we'll actually walk around the park and we'll just catch up about all the things. And sometimes when I'm catching up with friends, I'll say, hey, let's go for a walk rather than sitting down and having a coffee, which can be really nice. And then, look, I don't have kids, but I know a lot of people that get their kids involved, you know, playing in the backyard, get the frisbee out or a soccer ball or go to the beach and play cricket. It doesn't have to feel like exercise, does it? Or if you just want to do something at home, there are so many great YouTubes for whatever duration you want that you can just do at home just to start with just a little bit of movement. Now, before we finish up today's episode, we have got a question to answer from one of our members, and it is, is maple syrup better than honey? We asked our dietitians to answer this one, and this is what they said. 
Maple syrup and honey are quite similar in nutrition. For example, the calories, carbohydrates and sugar, they're quite similar. But honey is actually slightly higher in carbs and sugar, but it's quite a minimal difference. So I wouldn't even really note that too much. Both aren't hugely nutritious and foods that shouldn't be consumed in large quantities. So at the end of the day, it comes down to just having either of them in moderation and choosing what you prefer based on taste preferences. And we do know that honey and maple syrup are better for you than pure sugar. They they do still have some nutrients in them, which are going to be better. So if you like the taste, I'd go for it. Do you have a preference, Ross? Uh, neither. Yeah, neither. No, no I, I, I'm one neither. of those. You don't no, like no, sugar. No, no, no. I, I don't. I don't particularly like sugar, but I'm, I'm one of those people that I don't like the taste of honey. And oh. A lot of people love me. I just don't like. Just like fish, I don't like the taste of fish. And, wow. I, and again, I'm not against it. I just don't enjoy it. And I think you've got to be honest with yourself. What you don't enjoy, you don't enjoy. You want to destroy a pizza, put an anchovy on it. <laughs> you and I have like opposite kind of taste buds. I love all the things you've just listed. All right. That brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. We hope you enjoyed part one of this two-part series focusing on lifestyle factors that can help with our mental health. Next week, we're going to dive into part two, so please make sure to tune in because we all have stress in our life and we all want to improve our mental health or our mental wellness. So please do subscribe, keep us in your ears, And that is all from us from this week. We'll see you again next week. Bye.